Good morning. Today is Wednesday, October 5th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, the program where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thank you for listening and gathering around God's Word with us this morning. Whether you tune in over the air, stream online, or download the show as a podcast, I'm glad you're here. Settle in, open your hearts and your minds. We're about to begin. Thy Strong Word is underwritten by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. LHF translates, publishes, and distributes books that are Bible-based, Christ-centered, and Reformation-driven. When you get time, visit lhfmissions.org to learn more about all the great things they do for the kingdom. While you're online checking out LHF, maybe open up that email and send me a message. You can uh, say hello or you can ask a question or maybe provide a comment about today's show or any show. You email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. And every Friday, I begin the show by pulling from the old listener email bag, so be sure to tune in for that. Well, without any further ado, let's get to our topic this morning. It is going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 13, all 13 verses. And to help us dig into this text, I'm pleased to welcome as my guest, the Reverend Dan Eddy, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Beloit, Wisconsin. Pastor Eddie, welcome to the show. Did I say Beloit right? Yes, it is. It's a French word. Uh, Beloit is the correct way. We're right on the border with Illinois. Our congregation's about one and a half mile from the Illinois border. And so it's a pleasure to be on your show. And congratulations on being the new host. Oh, thanks. Yeah, well, I took it over from um, President Brady Finnern, who is the district president in the Minnesota North District. Uh, and for those of you who uh, really enjoyed him on this program, just so you know, he is now on Saturdays with the show Concord Matters. So be sure to check him out on that program. Uh, Pastor Eddie, you know, share maybe a little bit with our listeners about yourself and what God is doing through your ministry at Messiah. Well, I grew up in Beloit, Wisconsin, and I lived here until 1987. I uh, was a 1983 graduate of Beloit Memorial High School. Then I went to the University of Wisconsin-Platteville. And then in 1987, I moved about 15 miles to the south into Illinois uh, and Rockford, where I worked several jobs and lived there for 17 years. While I was there, I transferred my membership from my baptismal congregation, St. John's, to St. Paul in Rockford, Illinois and there served uh, on evangelism, uh, elder, worship assistant. And during that time, the membership there strongly encouraged me to go and be trained as a pastor. The biggest advocate for doing that was my wife. And she knew that leaving uh, a sales career that I had in sales and marketing would mean cutting our income in half. But she felt, and her family and my family felt, and the congregation at St. Paul felt I should be trained as a pastor. So 18 years ago, I started uh, my classes at Concordia University, or Concordia University, Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. Um, then I did a convertible vicarage out east in Situate, Massachusetts, where I served Christ Lutheran, a total of nine years, eight years as pastor. Then I returned to my hometown after 29 years of not living here. I did not go back to my baptismal congregation, but I got about as close as you can get, <laughs> uh, two miles away here at Messiah Lutheran Church. I, 
I know a number of people here once removed. I mean, people knew my mom or my dad or my brothers, but I actually knew very few members personally. So it made for the ideal call. I've never regretted coming back here to Beloit. It's a wonderful congregation. We're growing. We just added nine new members last Sunday um, and two through adult baptism. Uh, and seven of the nine through adult confirmation. Only two were actually what we would call a transfer within the LCMS. So that, that was phenomenal. We've opened up a food pantry last year with 300 clients. Last night, uh, 56 households were served through our drive through food pantry that equates to about 200 people here in the greater Beloit area. And we just started our backpack um, ministry on rally day where kids brought in their backpacks for school and we filled them with reminders to let them know that God never leaves them nor forsake them. Jesus reminders. So we had a tag we put on with Hebrews 13.5, I will never leave you nor forsake you, a direct quote from God. We had an eraser that says, God erases all sins and then quotes 1 John 1 verse 9. Uh, we had a prayer for school laminated that we put in there, a water bottle that said, uh, Jesus quote from John 4, 13 and 14, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks the water I will give them will never be thirsty again. So uh, so it's a, it's, it's a very fun ministry here uh, at Messiah, and I really love the people here. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of great things going on. Now, I don't want to have to do the math. So how long have you been there again? Six years. Okay, because I think just for a little while, we were in the same district together. We were out in New England. Yep, we were in the New England district, and and we were even classmates. So I was classmates with Brady Federin as well. And so, uh, yeah, small world. (laughs) All right, well, you know what? We're going to dive into God's Word today. There's all kinds of great things for us to cover. But before we do, would you lead us in a opening prayer? Yes, let us pray. O Heavenly Father, through your Son, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. By the power of the Holy Spirit, empower our study of your word today through careful reading and listening and learning so we may inwardly digest your word for strength and faith, increased understanding, careful discernment, and proper application for living your word so we may walk by faith and not by sight, in order that others may see and hear our good works, but give you the glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen and ascended Savior. Amen. Now we'll begin by reading our text for this morning, which is going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 
And that's verse seven. And we're at the end of this first half of the text. Brother, you know, start us off, right? So where has Paul been? Where is he going? What is going on in this text? Reverend Boo, you hit it on the nose. I always say to my students, uh, you know, what's the first question you ask when you open up a text? What's the context, right? And Absolutely. the context here is that you have church members in Corinth and they're running around and they're claiming that they're a more important part or member of the body of Christ than other people. And this was leading to arrogance and it was infecting the congregation in a very negative way. And I think Paul uses this passage to level the playing field and that all that we say and do should be centered in love. And he starts doing this in the previous chapter, uh, verse 12, when he says all parts of the body are equally important, and those that are given greater honor should be given less, and those that are being are given less honor should be given more. And so he's addressing uh, this issue in this very talented congregation, very wealthy congregation, but also very arrogant. And I mean, he's dealing with the, even before we get to chapter 12, he's dealing with pastors that are being worshiped as gods, um, members filing lawsuits against each other in civil court, sexual immoralities running rampant, including a member of their congregation sleeping with his stepmother and nothing's being done about it. You have women disrespecting men. You have the Lord's Supper being viewed in a heretical way and distributed in a less than reverent fashion. So, I mean, so he, this, this chapter has been building for quite some time to really convict people of their sins, and at the same time, to show them their Savior and how important He is in the body of Christ. Yeah, so often they wanted to, you know, they coveted, I guess, power and prestige and the spiritual gifts that they maybe even even saw out in the pagan world. You know, I've spoke with other hosts about, um, other guests about how, yeah, you know, they would look out into the pagan society and some of the priests or the ascetics or the oracles would have all of these what seemed to be supernatural powers. Maybe maybe it was just nonsense and utterings, but but that's what people perceived them to be. And they looked at their own faith and they thought, well, you know, I we want powers too. And so they were looking for those things. And that's what Paul has been talking about with chapter 12, you know, you know, having the different types of gifts and where these gifts fit in. But yeah, that message essentially is that all of these gifts are from the one spirit. They're all from the one God and they're for the one church to, to for us to serve one another. And so he's and they're directed talk- at the Holy Spirit. They're they're not right. we we don't earn them. Um they're given to us as the Spirit directs. Yes, and that's so important. That that any gift you have is something that is from God. And there's the different levels aren't to be you know, status among people, but rather just to complement one another and complement congregation so that you have these things to, to serve. Yeah, absolutely. And so when he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, now the tongues of men and angels, uh, is he talking about, what kind, is he talking about ecstatic speaking? Is he talking about, you know, what we call glossolalia? Is he talking about just being able to speak other languages? 
Yes, it's all of it. Uh, it just, you know, it's eloquent speech. It's beautiful speech. Uh, if you look in your Lutheran study Bible, um, many people consider the Hebrew language among the Jewish people to be, you know, the, the language of angels. But certainly in the context of chapter 12, we could be looking at supernatural languages as well as ordinary language. I mean, I think you can put that all here and, and not lose the point. It doesn't contradict right. the point. It actually makes the point. Look, you can have all of this flashy, beautiful, eloquent stuff, but if it's not love, it basically comes across to God, you know, well, like the, uh, if you ever watch the Peanuts cartoon, when the children are talking to the teacher, we can't understand what they're saying. You know, wah, 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 that's what it's going to sound like to God. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a good, that's a good uh, explanation. You know, he says a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Um, I'm not sure if you found this, but I read elsewhere that the clanging of the cymbals was uh, used in the worship of uh, Dionysus, you know, the god of wine and merriment. So they would clang these cymbals together, clashing them together, and gongs and other things used in various temples you know, is Paul just saying, hey, you know, this is all like the wah, 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 like you were talking about, which is true. Um, but could it also be speaking a little bit, especially with all the things he's had to deal with about them being formerly pagan? Is he saying, you know, you could do all of these things, but if you don't exercise those gifts in love, right? We just a few episodes ago talked about the weaker brother and Christian freedom and how we should be exercising our freedom in service of others. So if you if you if you do that and don't have love, then it's you're really no better off than the pagans in their worship. And their worship is is chaotic. And the, our God is a God of order and service, not one of chaos and disorder. Love is the great decoder of discourse to truly touch the heart of the hearer, uh, because. When, when I'm looking for power or prestige, that's me-centered. When you're looking at love, that's other-centered. You know, that's centered outside of me, not on me. And, and of course, this is agape love that we're talking about here. Um, not, is it uh, uh, philos or philia, uh, which is, you know, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It's not talking about that love. It's talking about agape love. And that's very important because it's the love only God has, and it's the love we can only receive from God. And if we understand that term love, then the rest of this chapter really is quite beautiful and makes a lot more sense. For sure. Verse 2, he continues the same thought. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge— and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but don't have love, I'm nothing. It's the same thought. But even here, you know, prophetic powers, all mysteries, all knowledge, the ability to understand those things, all faith. I mean, he's being hyperbolic, right? I mean, no one can actually have all faith, understand all mysteries and all knowledge. That would be that would be to be God. True. But think about it. Demons can possess these powers and Satanism or the occult, all right? Mm. But it doesn't mean, I mean, think about it. Uh, when the demons would see Jesus, they would correctly identify who he was, but nobody would ever say they were confessing faith in Christ. Mm. So here, love bridges the gap between believing and believing in. 
Okay. We don't believe God. We believe in God. And love is the difference between believing and believing in. It's be- the difference between knowledge uh, that puffs up while uh, possessing knowledge when we have love that builds up. Oh, yeah. No, that's a really good point. You know, and, and I, I like how he, in this verse, uh, appeals to what Jesus had taught about the faith as small as a mustard seed that we hear. Um, you know, he says, uh, I guess in Matthew 17 is one place, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there or elsewhere into the sea, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. And so he appeals to this, even if you have the faith that Christ explained could move mountains without love, well, essentially that's not true faith or it's, it's, a, it's a false faith. You know, the faith that you have, it's nothing. Just as the false gods and the idols are nothing out there in the marketplace, out in the temples, then uh, faith. Uh, or powers or knowledge like they love to proclaim they have just means nothing. And you are nothing, even if you try to rest on those accolades. And then in verse three, it seems like he's moving then to um, actions more than just uh, cognitive things or emotional things. He says, if I give away all that I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So once again, Pastor, he's he's doubling down on this thought that he's just emphasizing love, love, love is the key, as you've been saying. Interestingly, you know, when you look in um, uh, in the Lutheran Study Bible, they make a reference to sh- no, no, I'm sorry, Crossways. The Crossways Bibles makes a reference to being burned to Shadrach, Meshach, mm, and Abednego, mm-hmm. and and think about the the narrative from Daniel chapter three. They were willing to die for their faith. Uh, they didn't know they were going to be saved by this fourth image, a pre-incarnate Christ. They did it because they received the love of God first, and they were willing to die uh, to show that love in return. And as a result of that act, um, it, it, it highly influenced King Nebuchadnezzar to say, hey, there is something to the true God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So it's interesting that that image of the body to be burned, which I realize is not the only way you can translate that, makes that image to that. Oh, yeah. No, but that is a very fascinating image because, you know, when I first thought putting your body up to be burned, honestly, my first, the things I first thought about were, you know, the burning of the sacrifices in both the temple of God, but also in the pagan temples, they did similar things. But yeah, I, th- I think that's uh, that's great. In fact, by the way, we'll be discussing Daniel chapter three on uh, October eighteenth. So maybe we'll we'll revisit that idea then. Uh, just sort of a coincidence that that's going to be coming up here real shortly. But yeah, I love this text. Now, brother, though, tell us a little bit about love. Though you mentioned some of the different uh, words for love, but oftentimes we think of love as a warm and fuzzy feeling, an emotion. And in English, that's not inappropriate, but it's it's a little bit more active here, isn't it? It is, because philia love, I think, is what Americans are most uh, practice. Okay, and 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 that's a conditional love. You know, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. You stop scratching my back, I stop scratching yours. Whereas agape is unconditional love. You love without expecting anything in return. 
that truly is love that can only come from God. Think about it. Did if 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 Jesus, if God based the Son of God based coming down to earth to take on flesh on how much we loved him, he would have never done it. If he would have come down to earth and loved us, expecting everyone to just bow before him, he would have never done it. He he did it just regardless of what people's response to that love is. And if we can learn to practice that more as Christians, it's amazing how more people will see the true God in everything that we do. But Americans, it, it's a very conditional thing. In fact, I would even go so far as to say, if you don't agree with my political opinions, my lifestyle choices, if you don't agree with everything about me, then you don't love me and therefore I don't love you. In fact, I'll even accuse you of hating me. Uh, and that's a very selfish type love, very, very conditional. This is very much opposite of that. Yeah. You know, the love aspect in terms of the unconditional love, and that that explanation is really helpful. When we think about the, I call it trivial kinds of love that we often express, like I, I love pizza or I love sushi or I love my, my cat. Uh, but if your cat did nothing but str- scratch and bite you, then uh, you probably wouldn't love it. And if the pizza tasted bad or the sushi was bad, you wouldn't love it. Um, we have these very trivial things that we apply uh, the feeling or emotion of love to, and it makes it so superficial. So can you love your wife the same way or your husband the same way that you love uh, sushi? Can you love God the same way that you love anything else? And It's very interesting when, you mentioned yeah, marriage because where do we often hear this narrative? It's at weddings, mm-hmm. right? right? And uh, I, I attended a wedding about 32 years ago for a good friend of mine that I grew up with. And the pastor uh, preached on this text. And he got done reading it, and he goes, you know what? I hate this passage of Scripture. <laughs> and this is in a very traditional LCMS church. You should have seen the people squirm in their oh, seats. No. He goes, oh, I just hate this because this is so hard for us to, to uphold to. And yeah. so, uh, and by the way, uh, as you can see here, the context has really very little to do with marriage. Now, certainly we can apply this mm-hmm. passage to marriage, but eros, uh, another Greek word for love, doesn't even appear in the New Testament. At least I'm not aware of it. And let, nope. You're probably more scholarly in the Greek than I am, but this really then um, uh, intensifies the type of love we're talking about here. And I think that if people approach this text and realize that when we say love, we might want to make sure that that's the same type of love being spoken of here in this text. Otherwise, we may get a very distorted understanding of what this text is really, how it's really speaking to our faith, speaking to our heart. You're correct. People will go online and they're preparing for their wedding and they Google texts for weddings or they Google love in the uh, in the Bible, and this pops up, especially these next couple of verses, which I'm going to read again, because this is describing what love is. Uh, it flat out says that. Let's look at it again. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, it's describing love as not warm and fuzzy feelings, as I like to say, but as actions. 
So if that's the case, if love is patient and kind and love doesn't envy, et cetera, et cetera, then if you ask, well, do you love your wife? And it's like, yeah, I love my wife. But the reality is I don't always love my wife because I don't always, I'm not perfect at doing these things. I'm not perfect at self, uh, self-sacrifice self for her, at being uh, uh, sacrificial and loving in a way that God shows his love toward us. And the same can be said about our love for God. Do you always love God? And while we have faith, do we literally always love God? No. In the same way that we fail to love our spouses, we sometimes fail to love God, which is why it's so important that we recognize that this love isn't just talking about marriage. Really, it's talking about God's love for us, which extends to how we should treat other people. Exactly. And when I've preached this uh, for weddings, I have emphasized the point that there are going to be days you are not going to love your spouse. Right. And, and because they've done something, you have to come back to the unconditional love that Jesus has given you through his suffering, death, and resurrection. Otherwise, if you don't, then your marriage will quickly uh, de- uh, denigrate. It will quickly dissolve. And sadly, that that uh, I had married a couple where they were going to join the church thereafter. They, they never followed up on that commitment. And uh, the uh, bride came to me sometime later after they were divorced and apologized. They said, you know, they re- she remembered the words from uh, the wedding and and how uh, because if we don't follow God, who First John chapter four defines as love, so God is the essence of of love. That uh, she realized that that because they didn't have a Christ centered marriage, things quickly denigrated. Wow. You know, and it is important that Christ centeredness in marriage and not just that, but in our relationships with other Christians and in our relationships with other people. I don't know how exegetically appropriate it is, but I'm sure you've heard this too. Some people have taken these passages and says everywhere it says love, uh, replace uh, the, the with the word Jesus, right? Jesus Absolutely. Is I've done God. that. Yeah. yeah. And, and th- that exegetically makes sense because if First John 4 said God is love and Jesus is God, then absolutely you can use the substitution yeah. method here because especially when you get down into verse 7, Jesus bears all things. Mm. Jesus believes all things in, in a knowledge sense. Jesus right. hopes all things. Jesus endures all things. And, and that takes you right to the cross. He endured death for us so that we don't have to have it inflicted on us. Talk about the ultimate act of love. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And if Christ, especially in his human nature, is bearing all things, believing all things, believing in the Father's plans, he puts his hope and trust in the grand plan, and he endured all these things for us. And, of course, Christ God, man— uh, died for our sins and then rose again. And and that's just what's so wonderful because when we recognize what God has done for us through Jesus, then it makes it so much easier to then put this type of active love, this unconditional love, which we're never going to be perfect at, but it helps us put that into practice. And I love the fact that you talked about this as action-oriented, because if you read this casually, you think patience and kindness and not envying and not being boastful, not being arrogant or rude are adjectives 
but they're not because in the original Greek text, they are verbs. They are present verbs. They are ongoing actions. So it's really is, is love is being patient. Love is being kind. Love is continuously being patient. Love is continuously being kind. Love is continuously not envying or boasting or arrogant or rude. And when you look at that, you see that love isn't just a characteristics. It is a way of life. Amen to that. Well, we are up against a break. So let's pause for just a few moments and listen to these messages. Dear listener, don't go anywhere. In just a few moments when we return, the pastor and I will continue our discussion of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll see you on the other side. What's happening in Germany's Lutheran churches, where Iranian refugees are flooding through the doors? What new opportunities for sharing the Christian faith are arising in communist Vietnam, and how can my church play a part? Mission speakers, all LCMS pastors from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, will come to your church free of charge to preach and lead Bible studies tying into this exciting work going on all around the world. To schedule your speaker, call LHF at 800-554-0723. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and with me today is the Reverend Dan Eddy, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Beloit, Wisconsin. So, Pastor, before the break, we were talking about the active, active uh, nature of love and how it's more than just a feeling. Um, I'm going to read the rest of our chapter to get all of these verses into the conversation. So this is going to be verses 8 through 13, and then we'll jump back in. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. All right, so he definitely continues this theme of love. This is indeed the love chapter. Love never ends. Um, even prophecies will pass away. Even tongues that they were so interested in in Corinth will pass away. Even knowledge pass away. Well, all these things are go away, but love stays. Uh, what's that mean? Well, if God is love and he never had a beginning, he never has an end, then that means love will always be with us, which will be the only characteristic of life in the heaven to come. It's interesting that he uses the term partial here. Uh, he's dovetailing upon uh, 1 Corinthians 15, where he talks about the perishable uh, inheriting the uh, imperishable. Here, let me get the, um, the right passage up here. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And so think about this. Love ultimately is the ingredient 
where death is swallowed up in victory uh, and death has no power over us because of love. Love conquers all things. And it's only because God empowers that love, God is the essence of love, that any of that is made possible. And I think that's reflected in part here uh, because sin shields us from really understanding the true essence and magnitude of love. But as we grow in the word, we go from a childish view of love to a more mature view of love, yet that will not be fully known until the end when things are completed at the end of time. Yeah, in verse 10, he says, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away, which is what you've been speaking about. And that word for perfect is related to that word that we talk about, telos, the goal, the end, Christ coming. That's right. That's the that's the perfect coming. The completeness. Yeah, the completion. Yeah, the completeness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, completion. Thank no, 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 perfect. Yeah, because yeah, then when Christ appears when he comes back believers actually aren't going to need these gifts because christ is back right while we're here on this side of the you know christ return then we are living out for one another what what, how christ would have us live but then in the when the perfect comes this little partial way that we act out what it is to be christian or what it is to be christ to our neighbor yeah we don't have to do that anymore we're with christ and on the other hand, we will naturally do it. Recently, the ministerium in my area got back together after a break. We meet monthly, but we broke for the summer. We got back together, and the Baptist pastor, who was leading the session this particular time, he did a little devotion, and he talked about heaven, and he said, what are you most looking forward to in heaven? Now, I couldn't help myself. I had to say what I was looking forward to is the fact that it's going to be a new heaven and new earth and talked about the resurrection and <laughs> did uh, hopefully uh, did uh, Professor Gibbs uh, well by focusing on the resurrection. But when it got back to his turn, the thing he said, and I really do appreciate it, is he's just looking forward to what it'll be like to not be tempted by sin and to not and, to, mm-hmm. and essentially, I think he's talking about what it's saying here, how to love perfectly, because we are just experiencing mm-hmm. this partially. And so that's one of the things he was looking forward to. And yeah, it gave me something to think about on the drive home, because as I thought, I thought, yeah, that really, we have no concept of what, what it's like to be completely without sin, to not be tempted, and to love others perfectly without, without well, without anything in return. We get a little foretaste of what is to come in love, you know, principally in the very tangible presence of Christ with his body and blood uh, in the bread and wine and Holy Communion. And and by the way, if you back up to verse 6, uh, tell me if verse 6 doesn't talk about uh, how the center of our worship, which is rejoicing, tying to Paul's Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. How in verse 6, it says, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Now think about that. Uh, Our praise of God is on his love and doing his will. And I love this, but rejoices with the truth. Love rejoices with the truth. And who is Jesus? The way, the truth, and the life. So it's even an indication here about how love, uh, the Holy Spirit uses it to influence the worship setting, 
there. And so we get a little bit of these foretastes of the feast to come so that when we go out and live our faith, we have those moments of genuine love. And But I'll tell you, we don't see them very often because so much of our world is about the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I, and what can I can get out of it, and what people aren't doing to me, and I don't like that person anymore because they haven't done this for me, or they they try to fraud me this way, or gossip about me that way. And so when we do hit those few moments in life, we we can see that. We're like, wow, we get to live that all the time in the heaven to come. Yeah, another aspect of it that you've brought to my mind, and I appreciate what you're saying, is that also in our world that worships that unholy trinity, it's a world that literally rejoices at wrongdoing, which isn't which isn't mm. new. You know, in Romans uh, 132, Paul says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Second Thessalonians, something very similar in chapter two, he says, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Uh, now, those are the suggested from, from my, my concordance here, but it, it makes sense, right? We live in a world that rejoices at wrongdoing and does not rejoice with the truth. And, and God, the love of God, is uh, the exact opposite. So part of loving is not uh, giving in, giving approval to or, or acceptance to the things that are against God's will, but rather focuses on the truth. And that, that brings us back to what you had said earlier, which was is something that we struggle with today. And that is this idea that if you don't agree with me, or rather don't even approve or celebrate the sinful behaviors or the wrong ideas that I have, then you must hate me. Whereas love is about mm. recognizing that there is right and wrong and not rejoicing in the wrong. Uh, and so I think it, it's multifaceted here. We live in a world today where we feel the ends justify the means. So instead of when somebody wrongs us, we forgive them and do not respond in kind. We have developed this uh, moral, and I put that in quotations, where, where okay, you wrong me, I'm going to up the ante in wronging you. And I've seen this in my lifetime in our political discourse here in the country where, where you know, you have uh, the right feels that the left right now is uh, trying to overpower them. Well, there may come a day when the right gets in power, they're going to get revenge and try to overcome the left. I mean, and, and, and what happens is where does it end? It just keeps denigrating until finally you end up in a civil war. Who's going to be the person in the room that says this has got to stop because eventually nobody will benefit from this? I mean, think about it in war. Where is there love in war? There is no love in war. It's the last man standing wins. And there's a lot of destruction that occurs along the way because love is not being practiced. Yeah. Mutually assured destruction. You know, you think about how nuclear yep. war will never benefit anybody. Well, really, you know, do any of these battles that we fight out in the world, do they uh, do they result in the things of God? And and that's why we have to, even when we are at enmity with others, because we will be, because people in this world, unbelievers, outsiders, hate Christ, we must still think about the witness that we give and treat them in such a way that hopefully it points them 
to Jesus and to the love of God. Uh, Verse 11, I think, is fascinating. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. A very, very familiar verse from the Bible, and people quote it all the time. Um, the, the Greek word here is for a child about three or four years old, right? So it's talking about childish behavior, but he's giving that as a as an example of how the Corinthian Christians are acting. And of course, we can we can see ourselves in that too sometimes. When you get a steady diet of God's word in worship, through the sacraments, and in Bible study, over time, uh, the lost art of self-reflection, when you engage in it, you can go back and think of things that you did a year ago, five years ago, a decade ago, and you could say, why did I do that? And you know that God has forgiven you of it, but it's more than that. It's realizing I'm going to live that forgiveness, that that unconditional love that God gave me in changing the way I behave, that repentant behavior. And the more we embrace that love, the more we believe in that love, not just believe love, but believe in it, the more we will mature in our faith. Now, we may and we won't be perfect this side of heaven, but it will help us to endure the hardships as we head toward the end of this life, our our partiality, our, our excuse me, our partial body, our our mortality, to more and more embrace our immortality and the Im- imperishable love of Jesus. The acting like a, a child is something that he brings up time and again because you know the other the other aspect of childhood is is the, the immature Christian versus the mature Christian, the one that has to have milk and the one that's ready for meat. There is a growing, Mm -hmm. right? There's a growing that we do in the faith. You know, weaker so-called, as Paul would describe them, Christians who are still clinging to some of their pagan idols or pagan ways. You know, he tells the stronger ones to be patient with them. You know, don't don't harm their conscience, but, you know, lead them along in love. And when it comes to ourselves, we must recognize that, as you said, when we have a steady diet of the scriptures, we're going to mature. We're going to grow. So it's not an excuse, but just a reality that when we were children, we thought and acted like children. But now it's time to put those things away. It has nothing to do with toys and growing out of them. It has to do about maturing in the faith and taking on the mantle of love. Right? Children uh, relish in being right. I'm correct. Uh, I, I want to have, uh, I want to be the most important. I want to be the richest. You know, you ask children what they want to, a lot of them, what they want to do, and they mimic the culture's values. And as they grow up and hopefully are led along in the Holy Scriptures by their parents, they start to realize that there's more to life than this life and that sometimes uh, being right is not worth destroying a relationship because ultimately um, it's our love for others that gives us the opportunity to proclaim the truth of God. Well, and that is living hope. Think about that. What is hope? Hope is living with the promise of the future, but you're living it as though you have already received it. In order for that to happen, you have to more clearly see God working in your life. The more you see God working in your life today, the more you are going to see how precious and, and priceless that gift is. Uh, Peter 
said here uh, in First Peter 1, the opening chapter, he says, according to uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, great mercy. Think about what mercy is. It's not getting what you deserve. We deserve hell. We deserve not to ever receive immortality. But he has caused us to be born again through the waters of holy baptism to a living hope. And that hope is built around the ultimate act of love, which is Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection, and the power of that love shown in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that Peter says is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And now, you want to talk about maturing in the faith. Is this the same Peter that back in John 21, when uh, uh, Jesus confronts him about Peter denying him? Remember that? When he said, uh, hey, Peter, do you love me? And he said, yeah, I, I love you. And <laughs> then he said, well, go feed my lambs or tend my sheep. Well, And there's, a, of course, it's a disputed exegesis. But when you look at it, uh, John, most English translation would just use that Jesus asked him three times if he loves him. But if you go and look at the Greek, one, you know, uh, Jesus says, do you agape me? And Peter says, well, I feel you. And then Jesus said, do you agape me? And, and Peter says, well, I feel you. And then finally, uh, Jesus says, well, do you feel me? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I love that. And then, so Peter's annoyed that he's asked the third time, but then Jesus turns the corner on him. He goes, you don't even love me like a brother. Right. Okay, and that conviction was needed for Peter to embrace Jesus' forgiveness so that he could mature in the faith. Because after that, when you know what what happened to Peter between this event that happened during the forty days of Christ walking the earth after his resurrection and him giving that wonderful sermon on Pentecost Day, and then if you go through the Book of Acts, you know Peter and the way that he is leading the early church, and then his expression of that faith inspired by the Holy Spirit in First and Second Peter. You're like, wow, what seminary did he go to? <laughs> he went to the seminary of Jesus' That's right. love. That's right. I, you know, it, it's, it's amazing when you think of the Corinthian Christians who were so caught up in having, you know, excellent knowledge and being these mature super Christians, and we think about Christians today who— sometimes do the same thing. You know, they, 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 they pride themselves on their perfect doctrine or they pride themselves on their uh, degrees or they pride themselves on even their good works. And the reality is that um, we, we are made into Christ's images, sometimes slowly, sometimes over time. We, we endure trials and tribulations. Luther certainly knew this. Uh, your example of Peter is an example of that. If St. Peter had to do some growing, even after Jesus' resurrection, then surely we, wouldn't, we shouldn't be so, so naive to think that we don't have plenty of room to grow in our faith and the way we apply that faith in our life. Amen to that, brother. And, that's a, and, and, and so the test of how well you're doing with this. So when I've preached on this text, I've actually had people say, okay, you know, we talked about earlier taking the word love out and putting Jesus in there. I said, even before we get to the gospel, 
in the law part, I said, okay, let's take the word love out and put the word I in there. Now repeat after (laughs) me. I am patient. I am kind. I do not envy. Do not boast. And by the time you get down to, I always protect, I always trust, and I always hope, you can just see people like, yeah, I don't do any of this, do I? Or I don't do much of it. And so even in God's love, when he convicts us of our sin, he doesn't do it to hurt us. He does it to bring us to, to Jesus. And, you know, we want to be unconditionally loved, but do we want to love others unconditionally? And this is where the maturity of the faith that we've been talking about is so important. Because if in our marriages we learn how to love unconditionally, then we can get through any problem that's there. If we can learn as church people in the fellowship of our congregation to love each other unconditionally, watch how our churches will grow, grow in the maturity of faith and perhaps grow in numbers to go along with that. And if we practice it, and remember, loving is a unilateral act. Agape love is a unilateral act. It does not rely on what the other person has done or will do. If we all live that because we have this hope built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, then guess what? We will see more of that love that we talked about in heaven we'll be living it today. Verse 12, he uses some poetic language here. Well, I guess there's a little bit of exegetical disagreement here too, but he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The disagreement comes with this idea of a mirror dimly. What exactly does that mean? The common understanding, so far as I, I know it, is that in Corinth or even in this time period, mirrors wouldn't have been uh, the, the, the modern mirrors we have today. They would have been polished pieces of metal. Corinth was known for its bronze. It could have even been a polished piece of bronze. And thereby looking into a mirror, you say, well, you know, you don't get a full or clear picture, but one day you will. Um, I was reading the Concordia commentary on this passage. And he actually has a little bit to say about that. He says that more likely the phrase just refers to seeing something indirectly rather than incorrectly or rather than disfigured, that it's just about seeing the form of something rather than the content. It is accurate. It's true. It's just not distorted. Now, how much that's important in understanding the passage, I'm dubious, but what we do see for sure is that he's saying that there's a time to come when we will fully experience uh, what it's like to ha- to receive the love of God and to be able to show that love to others, essentially without any effort on our part. And we see that in part now. Uh, as you pointed out earlier, we see it in things like baptism and the Lord's Supper, the sacraments, um, and, and other areas too. But then it'll just be in this fullness that it's hard to get our minds around. What do you think? Sin keeps us from seeing uh, love as anything but dimly. Um, it's interesting, uh, Linsky, in his commentary, he, he translates this part as, for we n- now see by means of a mirror in a dark saying, but then face to face. And that's just it. If you want to use light and dark, uh, that also helps too with how well you see things in a mirror. Even if it's a nice polished mirror, you're not going to see things as well in the dark. You will see, dimly, okay? But you will see things once you, you shed more light on it. Well, if sin is dark, 
then the more we sin, the less we're going to see love, the less we're going to mature. The more we receive the light of Christ through the power of his word, the more we're going to see that love more and more working in our lives. Absolutely, and I think that does completely help us understand the ultimate message. Uh, Just for fun, though, I will say that the word that's translated dimly is uh, from the Greek um, enigma, right? And we know what an enigma is. It's a riddle. So the text says, for now we see in a mirror like a riddle or in the manner of a riddle or, you know, it's, it's it's something hard for us to understand, an indirect image. Um, and I think that the fact that we are beset by sin and our old natures and constantly under attack, um, yeah, it, it's hard for us to understand because I like the light and dark. I like the fact that you look into it and it's not clear and you're going to see clearly in the future. I also like the riddle aspect too because it gives us this impression or it helps us understand it according to the, you know, we don't fully understand the love of God. Um, Because if we did, if we fully grasped and understood exactly what it was like for God to love us in the way he did through Jesus Christ, then there was no nothing that would keep us from not loving other people. So the only reason it's a riddle is because of our fragmented and fallen human natures who have trouble, have trouble understanding. Absolutely. You you hit that right on the nose. Yep. So then I, I shall be known fully even as I have been now. So now Faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. We just have a few minutes left in the program, brother. You know, it's all yours. You know, bring it home. Tell us about uh, the whole message here. What? How are we concluding? Anything else that we didn't cover that you want to bring in here? Um, I'd love to hear it. This verse, until I actually came back and look at this, if we see God as love, then without God who is love, faith is temporal, Hope is fleeting based on a wish. Think about that. We use the terms faith and hope and love differently inside the church and used out in our culture. But if faith and hope are conditioned on God's unconditional love, then faith is saving and eternal, and our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And that is the essence of real love versus what our culture says is real love. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Dan Eddy, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Beloit, Wisconsin. Thank you, Pastor, for being on the show. I look forward to having you on in the future. Glad to be here. Loved it. Thank you, and God's blessings as you continue with this great program. And thank you, too, dear listener, for tuning in to Thy Strong Word. I've been your host, Pastor Phil Boo. Tune in tomorrow as we continue in 1 Corinthians with chapter 14, talking about prophecy and tongues. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.